0: of course in Luke and uh, looking at the fifth chapter of Luke, continuing in our look at seeing Jesus anew. Uh, And today we're looking at verses 27 through 39. And so I invite you to hear these words. After this, he, being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax collection station. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed Him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them: Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You cannot make wedding attendants fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will one tear the new garment, but the piece from the new will not match the old garment. Similarly, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will spill out, and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good sisters and brothers in christ this is the word of the lord thanks be to god let us pray god on this beautiful morning we come to you giving you praise for the ways in which we have seen you this week we know lord that there are perhaps many opportunities we have missed seeing you so we pray that even in this time that you would help us to see where you have been. And we thank you, Lord, for the ways in which we discover anew your deep, reckless love for us. And I pray, Lord, that the words in my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So uh, back in November, uh, on our last Sunday, we talked about Jesus beginning to kind of uh, um, um, call some new disciples, and and now Jesus is continuing that call. He goes along, he's walking along, and he sees Levi, a tax collector. Now, this week I was in, uh, as I said, I was in Pensacola, and uh, we went, uh, my niece and I went to Waterburger for lunch because it's good. And so we went to Waterburger, and we were in Whataburger. Uh, this is a true story. And I look over at the booth and there is a gentleman with a shirt on and kind of embroidered in his shirt, <clears throat> no lie, was his name, uh, Scott S. I won't say what his last name was. Uh, and then underneath that it said tax collector. <laughs> Have you ever seen that? I have never seen that in all my days, so I went over to talk to him, and I thought he's probably going to think maybe I'm a little bit crazy or whatnot, but I just wanted to, so I, I went over and I just, you know, I talked to him, what, what's your job like? Do you enjoy your job? What do you know? And and, and actually, he was, he was pretty, you know, affirmative of it. I was kind of hoping he'd have a lot of bad stories and I could use it in a sermon. He didn't. Uh, he did say that every once in a while people who really hate government uh, of any sort, like sometimes they can be a little bit mean, and, uh, but, but, I wanted to take a picture with him. Actually, my niece surreptitiously took a picture and I was going to show it. And I thought, well, I don't have his permission and I'm getting kind of nervous about that. And and so I didn't do that, but I actually wanted to say, hey, will you take a picture with me? But I, again, I thought he might think I'm going to put this up online and, you know, do something like that. But I, as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, even today, you know, there's a little bit of anxiety that comes around, you know, with uh, being around a tax collector and, and what people are going to say to you. Again, I it's really, isn't it strange that he would have that on his shirt? I mean, monogram, you can't do anything with that. But, And as weird as it is for us, right, to think about tax collectors and, and, and kind of the, uh, uh, how that might feel to be a tax collector, you know likely that it would have been even more difficult 2,000 years ago. Because here, of course, um, um, there, if you were a tax collector as a Jew, you would have been seen first and foremost as a traitor, right? You are working alongside the Roman Empire, and so already you were kind of downgraded. And then, secondly, uh, as you probably know, most of these tax collectors, uh, they, you know, they made money based off of how much more than the tax they charged you. So they needed to make a living, of course, but they would oftentimes charge even more than that, and so they were frequently uh, quite wealthy. And so they were, you know, they were doing well in one sense, and yet they were absolutely despised in another. And so there's Jesus, and he goes, and there he sees Levi with his monogram shirt, tax collector Levi, and he says, follow me. It's this remarkable word, these words, follow me. I, I love kind of thinking through those. This is this reminder to us that the christian faith is not just kind of saying oh, okay well we're going to we're going to abide by this particular law or this ordinance or even this religion. It is really the sense of following after a person who is God, fully God, fully human, following Jesus. It reminded me of, of, of what we talked about several, uh, maybe a month or two ago, about this three mile an hour of God. It's something we talk about a lot. This is kind of journeying alongside. What is faith? It is following Jesus. It is journeying alongside. And it's not doing so at a, at a fast pace. It's kind of a difference, uh, if you will, between like driving on the interstate and driving along uh, uh, one of those old state highways. I don't know how often you do that. I still love kind of driving on those old state highways, you know, and and you go and you're stopping all the time because there's stoplights. And so you're going for a little while, then you stop. And, and then you go through and there's these little towns, you know, that clearly those hotels at one point were like really booming. And then once the interstate happened, has anyone do that? Anyone take state highways? Okay. And and then you go and then you see like those old school uh, rest areas. You remember those? It's just like a, like a pavilion and then like concrete picnic uh, table and chairs. You guys ever seen that? Very comfortable. And, And so, and it's just this kind of, it's a much slower pace, Right, and, and, and there's this sense that, that, that this is what it's a journey with Jesus. It's at, a, it's at a slower place. And there are times when maybe you go a little faster than others. But there are times when you're resting. There are times of joy. There's times of sadness. But it is this journey in which we are walking alongside Jesus. This is what the faith is about. And so there we're walking alongside Jesus and, and, it, and we're told that Levi here rises up. And scholars uh, point out that this word for rise up is the exact same word that we saw last week uh, with the paralytic. When, when the paralytic rose up from the mat. And it's just, again, this reminder to us that when we begin to follow Jesus, we begin going in a different Direction. We begin going in a different way. They rise up, and it says here that then he kind of, you know, he left everything behind and he followed Jesus. And uh, as as Keith Nichols says, this is oftentimes a part of discipleship: is leaving everything. And following him. What does it mean to leave everything? Well, as we'll see here, it doesn't always mean that you leave behind everything materially. Remember, he he throws this great party, and so as commentators say, it's likely it doesn't mean he, he gave away all of his goods, but it does mean that he was willing to leave behind anything that hindered him from this new journey, from this new walking with Jesus. And then, of course, Levi throws again this great banquet. He throws this huge Party. I love what one commentator says, which is that Jesus seems to always either be going from or going to a meal. Jesus loved to eat. And of course, it wasn't just about the food, right? It was about the fact that he got to be with people. And one of the things that we know about eating with people, especially in that time, is that it told you a lot about who the person was. In fact, there's this great kind of ancient uh, uh, Eastern proverb that says, I saw them eating and I knew who they were. In other words, who you ate with was a sense of who you were. It gave you identity, right? This is who I am because I am eating with these people. And Levi, of course, is eating with a bunch of Tax collectors, right? If you're an outcast, you hang out with other outcasts. If you're a tax collector, you hang out with other tax collectors. You know, hey, where'd you get that shirt, Levi? I like that tax collector. Very nice. This is what you do. You just gather with other people like that. And and and, and don't you know it, but the Pharisees and the scribes, they don't like this, right? So they're looking at him and they're like, oh, what's he doing? He's eating with these. This, this means that, you know, that that he's welcoming them. This means that he's almost saying that he's a one of them. What does that mean exactly? And so they asked the disciples, what's he doing? right? Which I also find interesting. Why didn't he ask Jesus? But he asked the disciples. I don't know why, but perhaps it's because maybe the disciples even at this point, it's still early on. Maybe they weren't very comfortable. So maybe they're kind of standing next to the Pharisees and to the scribes. But of course, they don't answer him. No, instead it's Jesus that answers. And Jesus says, hey, look, I'm not here for the healthy. I'm here for the sick. I'm here in order to help them, in order to forgive and, and call them to repentance. I'm not here for the righteous. I'm here for these tax collectors and sinners. And we're reminded that the gospel of Luke talks about repentance more than any other gospel writer. It begins in John the Baptist in chapter three. He brings it up and goes all the way through in scenes like this and many other scenes with Jesus all the way up to the final commissioning where Jesus commissions the disciples before he leaves. He says, go call them to repentance. Go and call people to forgiveness and repentance in my name. Well, the Pharisees and scribes, they don't really like that answer very much. Again, not surprisingly. So they say, okay, we got something else for you. You know, John the Baptist's disciples and our own disciples as Pharisees, they fast and pray. But you are always eating and drinking. Now, They don't ask this because they're considering, maybe we should go with you. We kind of like party, Jesus. We like this. Uh, We we want to follow this. No, they're asking, of course, because they're judging. You know that, right? I mean, we all have these kind of, you know, passive aggressive people in our lives who are saying one thing, but you know what they're actually saying, right? Can you think of somebody? Yeah, we all have these. And so he's saying, well, you know, what are we doing? And so then, you know, Jesus, Jesus says, you know, when you're a bridegroom, and you're one of the attendants of the bridegroom, on those wedding nights, you party. You celebrate. This is what you do. There will come a time when the groom is no longer here, and then, then there will be time for fasting, but not right now. And then he goes on, and he starts to tell parables about, you know, you don't, you don't sew new material on old material. You don't pour new wine into old uh, wine skins. And you know, on the one hand, these kind of parables say, you know, they're okay, I kind of get it. But on the other hand, it's, hard, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what they mean. And there's a lot of kind of disagreement amongst commentators. How does this exactly connect? And some people think, well, it just means that they're reframing. Jesus is reframing things. So fasting used to be about repentance. But, but now, uh, this is uh, what they would say in, in the Scott and Stan video, they, they suggested, now it means uh, uh, that we're fasting in anticipation of the groom returning. Uh, others would say, no, 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 no. It's about kind of just a whole new world religion, that, that Jesus is just throwing away the old and, and bringing in the new. And others would say, no, 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 this is, this is about old traditional parts of maybe worship and things like that, how we cling to, uh, to worship practices. And we think, oh, this is the only way. But Jesus is helping us to see that there are always new, fresh ways in which God is working. And we don't really know for sure. What we do know is that when you have so many different ways to read this, you hold the interpretation perhaps a bit lightly. Now, there are several different things that we could have thought about. I talked about today. I thought I'd talk about talking about fasting and doing some of these things. But what I landed on was what I knew was everyone's favorite subject. The reason why we all love coming every Sunday, and that's repentance. Aren't you excited that you came? repentance. Now repentance, uh, I thought it was important for us to talk about one because Luke talks about it so often that it's good for us to actually give some voice to it. Otherwise it it seems like we're trying to hide from it. So on the one hand, I want us to talk about repentance because Jesus talks about it a lot and Luke realizes it's important. On the second hand, I want to talk about it because it's a struggle for us to talk about. I mean, we talk about confession and repentance from time to time, but it's so important that we need to keep bringing it up, I think. A part of the reason why it's difficult for some of us to talk about repentance is because right now, especially, and this is probably the way it's been, but it feels even more uh, right now. There's such pressure, right, uh, uh, in not being wrong. And if you are wrong, then, then, then you are shamed into oblivion. Right, and so there's an immense amount of pressure to be incredibly defensive and to act as if you've never done anything wrong because if you admit to something, right, then it's completely brutal and you can be brutalized by folks uh, who are more than happy, it seems, uh, to point out uh, 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 your own flaw without being able to see their own. So that's one of the reasons why I think we struggle. Another reason why we struggle with repentance, of course, is just what's inside of us. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to think about ourselves as, as having imperfections. And and, and so we, we tend to not take much space to just reflect, you know, how are we when it comes to our own journey? How, how are we doing? What does that look like? And creating that space, I'm convinced that a part of the reason why we don't like creating space is because we don't like to think about some of those things. We, we are busy and we think, oh, it's just because we're really important. And perhaps the reason why we're going from one thing to the next is because we are are afraid that if we slow down too much, we might begin to reflect on ourselves, and we don't know for sure what we're going to find. Of course, another reason why we sometimes struggle with repentance is because perhaps you were raised in a tradition um, um, where uh, repentance was something that was always brought up, and it was brought up with great almost vitriol and almost great joy where the preacher would tell you how bad you were and how much you needed to repent. I I was thinking about that this week uh, uh, when I was at the hospital in the kind of the little waiting room and up on a window seal, um, there was, and let me just say what it was before we show you the picture, a Christian, a, a track. And I know not everyone, knows what a track is and so it's like religious literature and this one is like a you know a Christian one to try to get you to start following Jesus and and here was what the cover of it looked like I mean who doesn't want to dive into that uh and as you kind of began to read through it, um, um, it was really—it just got worse uh, from there. From the Grim Reaper, I mean, it was—it was very much someone else who kind of was reading it next to me. Was like, well, this is kind of fear mongering. And in many ways, of course, it was—it was—it was right. Um, um, uh, Not—it was right, but he was right. Uh, and so, you know, there's this, uh, i i i sh- i, I should have thrown it away. I actually just left it there. Um, um, so. You know, and perhaps you were raised in a tradition in which every week, you know, you would, uh, you would hear from the preacher and and, and and the preacher would tell you to come down and you needed to repent. And, I, you know, at times I went to churches like that. And when I was in college, I went to churches. Please take that down. And, and, um, very nerve wracking, um, and, and there, was an, there was always a sense of shame and, and, and fear, uh, you know, and, and you would come down and then you would, you'd, you know, you would be forgiven and, and then you would walk on, you'd feel good for a little bit, but then it wouldn't take very long until all of a sudden that shame and fear came back and the next week you'd be running back down uh, to the altar again. And it was just this, almost this constant cycle, it seemed. And, and it seemed that really what you were doing, you weren't really necessarily running to something as much as you were running away from something, away from fear and shame and guilt. And there was no sense in many ways of being able to run to any kind of genuine forgiveness or hope. There's lots of reasons why we struggle with repentance. And one of the reasons, it seems to me, that we do so is because we don't start at the right place. And I think that's one of the things that we see in this passage that I think is really important for us to look at. See, at the very beginning of this passage, Jesus is walking along and he sees Levi. That word for to see here is a word, um, as uh, Stan uh, Johnson um, says, is, is the word from whence we get theater. And it's the sense of seeing beyond just the physical. In other words, it's the sense of really actually seeing the person that you are looking at seeing beyond the surface and seeing the person as he or she actually is. One other commentator says it's it's really kind of the sense of seeing um, that comes out of a place of deep love. So that when Jesus comes along and he looks, we're told at Levi, it's not a glance, it is looking at somebody deeply and genuinely seeing that person and loving them right where they are, right there in the middle of the muck and the messiness, right there in the middle of the depth and the darkness of whomever it is. And it's not saying, oh, okay, well, you know what? Do this and then come follow me. Clean up, go in there, a little toothbrush, a little shower, then come and follow me. It's saying right now, right where you are, follow me. Me. It is this sense of this Im- immense, deep love, this remarkable love that this is actually a part of what it means to repent. It starts not from saying something, I've done this, or here's where I've gone wrong. It doesn't start in any of those places. It starts with the loving God who loves us in a remarkably deep way. Trevor Hudson suggests that really it is only when you're in the presence of someone who loves you in this kind of unconditional way that you can then genuinely be honest about your own struggles. I I don't know about you, but when I'm criticized, maybe when you've been criticized, it is much easier for me to actually hear that criticism and to really discern it when I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the person who is giving it loves me deeply. That it's not about, you know, them being able to get one over on me or, or them being able to kind of, you know, get what they want. No, no, no. It is about the fact that this person looks at you or looks at me and says, I love you so much. I love you first and foremost. I love you. And in the middle of that love begins to say, and look, as a part of that, you begin to see, well, maybe if, if, if this is really love, maybe, maybe I should listen to what this person is suggesting It's a completely different kind of love. It is a reckless love. I asked Jason, please, to sing this song for us as he did, this reckless love. There are those who have a real problem with it theologically. They think, oh no, God's love is not reckless. That's horrible. I think that they're wrong. Because I think when you begin to look at like Luke 8, and we'll see that you have the sower who's just sowing seed everywhere, right? Not just sowing it like in those places that are nice and cozy and full of soil. No, no. On the rocks and the thorns, this is a kind of reckless love. Or in Luke 15, we'll see in three different parables, all oh, one right after another, you've got the, uh, the, 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 the shepherd who goes after the one when he has 99, that's reckless. The woman who looks for one coin, even though she still has nine, and then of course, the famous story of of the father who receives this young son even after he has squandered all of his wealth and he's been a good for nothing and yet he runs after him it is a reckless kind of love and see this is the kind of love that God has for you and God sees all through everything I want you to think about yourself in the worst place that you've ever been And I want you to know in that very place, there is Jesus right there. And from the very beginning, when he sees Levi, he sees him for all that he is. I mean, this is hard for us to imagine. You know, I was was thinking about Uh, how oftentimes when we begin to date somebody and then we get married and I was thinking about this even, you know, as I was at the hospital and seeing like these couples that were there for one another, that's a massive shift. You know, when you first start dating, you know, you think about that first date, you spend, you know, just hours thinking about, what am I gonna wear? You know, you spend all this time maybe putting on makeup or making sure that everything is just right and, and you go and you're actually doing everything you can to hide the real self. And then the longer you stay married, Right? All of a sudden, the breath, it's bad a lot. The hair's all, you know, either like cockeyed or it's just not there. You know, and and you begin to go through all of these things and all of these struggles. And if you were just to look at this and you looked at this, you know, maybe this this young couple, you know, and they all look perfect and beautiful and, and everything is just right, you know, because they've dolled themselves up, or this older couple who just woke up in the morning and just everything is catawampus, and you were to look at these two and say, Well, who do you wanna be? You know who you wanna be? You wanna be that couple who are catawampus and everything is messed up. Why? Because this is a couple who's learned to just genuinely love each other and to know what is actually important. This is knowing the real who you are. And Jesus has this ability to do this from the very beginning. He says, I don't need you to kind of get all gussied up. He says, Levi, I want you to come just as you are and that's how I love you. So what happens? After that, of course, he begins to live this life of repentance. And what does that mean? It means a party. He throws this huge party, right? All of a sudden then there's this great excitement. And I love what Gerhard Hughes says about repentance because he says, he says this, he says, when God in Christ says repent and believe the good news, he is uttering an invitation, not a threat. Do you hear that? You know, the, um, uh, the track, what was that? That was a threat, but here he offers an invitation and we have this great image of, you know, here Levi's offering his invitation. Hey, I'm going to have a party. What kind of party? It's a repentance party. And he says, come one, come all. And it's this beautiful image of exactly what a party looks like. And this is what I want you to know. This is uh, We oftentimes see this in scripture. And Eugene Peterson, uh, he, I'm gonna uh, show a quote here, but he talks about, he's talking about salvation, but you can really talk about this about almost any doctrine, including repentance. And here's what, here's what Peterson says. He says, as our salvation text, let's call it our repentance text, doesn't provide us with a dictionary definition of salvation or repentance. What we get is a salvation, repentance story, frequently remembered and often told, the Hebrew way to understand salvation, repentance was not to read a theological treatise, but to sit around a campfire with family and friends and listen to a story. You want me to define repentance for you? Here it is. It's like a story, it's like a banquet. It's like a huge dinner and you've got this guy who's been greedy and always kind of thinking about himself and all of a sudden he's the one handing you free drink, right? This is, not, you know, this is not a cash bar. He's just kind of handing it to you. Free food, whatever you want. And they're gathering around and you're with all of your friends and you're, you're having a good time and you're talking. And, and there you have Jesus, the groom, and he's right there in the middle and everyone is kind of gathered around and it's this great hospitality. It's this huge celebration. This is what repentance is like. It is this remarkable story. It's this remarkable party. Now, it is, of course, difficult for me to ever see, and I'll never for the rest of my life be able to see the words Great Banquet without thinking about ZPC and Great Banquet. Great Banquet, of course, is this uh, celebration, you know, and, and there's lots that we talk about, but we're having another weekend coming up and, and, and honestly, it would be uh, not good for me not to say something about it. And, and, and I was thinking about, this celebration. And so I, I, I texted out a couple of uh, folks I know who recently went through Great Banquet or one of them recently went through, one of them went through a few years back. And one of the things about Great Banquet that I think is especially remarkable, A, it gives you 72 hours, right? To just kind of be still and be quiet. We talked about that, about the introspection. Most of us don't spend the time doing that. It gives you that time. Um, um, and one of the other things that one of these guys said, which I really appreciated was that it helped him to experience love, right? Because it was all of a sudden these people he didn't know and, and and maybe would never see again. And yet they were just experiencing and expressing love in lots of different kind of great ways. And and it's this reminder of, of kind of Jesus looking at Levi saying, I don't really, you know, and it's a sense of, hey, maybe maybe I don't know you that well or whatnot, but hey, I love you just as you are. Let's go. come Come with me. Come follow me. And there's this great sense of love and But then someone else expressed and it reminded me of Eugene Peterson said, you know what, it's one thing kind of theoretically to understand grace and love, and I would say repentance, but it's another thing to to, to really experience it firsthand and to to really be able to just kind of engage with it firsthand and to to see it, Not, not just a definition. Oh, okay, this is what repentance means. This is what grace means. This is what love, unconditional love means. No, to actually literally experience it. But now here's the other thing that he said, which I found to be quite striking. Which, he said that, and then he said, and and you know what? I now parent differently. And see, that's one of the things I think is so significant when it comes to something like grace or repentance. Which is that it's not just, oh, this helped my past, and now I feel differently. No, no, no. It actually puts you on a completely different journey in the present and as you go forward. It is, as someone said, it is a doorway into a different kind of life. You see, when you begin to think through your own areas of of pride or materialism or or, or whatever, jealousy, envy, whatever else it might be, and you you begin to think about what's repentance. Okay, I just need to come, feel forgiven uh, for a little while, and then you know, and then I can then I can move on with my life. No, no, no. no. It is actually because this is what repentance means. It's going in a wholly different direction. Why? Because you walked through this door. It's going through a door into a party where you are relieved. Where you are letting, setting aside your grace, and you know, uh, or set, don't set aside grace, setting aside uh, those, your sins and your brokenness and walking through, and then there's this whole other world. This is what repentance is like. It was nearly impossible for me to think about this and not think about a story that a ZPC or told me that I've already told twice, but I love it so much I can't stop telling it, even though I asked the person once again, Can I say it? And if so, I won't. Speak of it again for three years. So, 2026, I'll bring it up once again. It was a story about the, this family of six who wanted to go on vacation many years ago now, and they were going to go down to Florida. So, it was the mom and dad and the four smaller kids. So, they make their arrangements, and this was before really kind of the time of the internet, so they didn't really know exactly what they were getting, but this is probably over the phone they described, oh, okay, great, I don't know what this place is. Like, okay, wonderful. So they, they, they head on down to Florida. They drive down to Florida. They get there and they walk into uh, this condo and it is just one room with two queen beds and a little kitchenette. And they thought, oh, this is not what we wanted. We thought we were getting this great place where we could really just kind of spread out. And they were gonna be there for a week if you've had little kids or been around a little kid or, you know, and, and if you don't have this experience, I can offer you mine. And, and, and when you go into a little space, it's not that much fun for a whole week to be in this one little, like basically small, you know, studio motel for a whole week. And so they're like, oh, this is not at all what we had thought we were getting. And, and then they looked and not only that, but there was this door, right, that led to the next. Condo And and what we know about doors is that they they, they don't silence noise very well. And so not only then did they not have much space, but they were constantly having to tell their children, shh, shh. Because they knew that the people on the other side did not want to hear all this noise. So they were mostly just outside all the time. And they weren't able to kind of just relax at home, you know, and watch some TV and do some of those things. They'd been there for six of the seven days. They got back late in the afternoon on the sixth day and the little girl, she, she ran around the building to the other side and they said, where are you going? Come back. And all of a sudden the little girl screamed out, hey, this door over here has the same number as the door that we've been staying at. They said, what? So sure enough, they went on around to the other side of the building and they tried their key and they opened up the door Sure enough, there was this massive living room with sofas, and then there was this whole big kitchen. And then they looked, and there was the door. And of course, that door led to that little small place where they had been the whole week. And if they, some six days earlier, would have simply tried to open up that door, they would have been able to see All of this abundant space and joy that was there for their taking. And yet they had simply lived their life for those six days confined to this small space. You see, I think when it comes to something like repentance, we end up living in this little small space because we, you know, we, we well, let's do a little confession here, a little confession there, or we just don't think about it. We don't want to push that door. We don't know what's on the other side. And so we just kind of sit in this little space. And what we don't realize is that actually, if we would be willing to go through this doorway, what we would begin to see is this even greater life, this Zoe life that we've been talking about, this life abundant that comes only when you are able to release the shackles of sin and brokenness and even more perhaps the shackles of of that pain or that pressure to act as if we have it all together, as if we are perfect, as if there's nothing wrong with us. And you begin to walk into this whole space and you realize there's a whole party to be had. In here, and yet we have been content to just kind of live in this one small space. But now, here's what's really important, especially for those of us who may have been on this journey for a little while, which is that repentance is not just about a doorway, as Trevor Hudson says, it's actually about a whole path. You see, repentance is something that we do again and again and again. Because the closer that you get to Jesus, the more you begin to see the reality of who you are and that brokenness. It again is much like a, a, much like a marital relationship, it seems to me. This is the weird thing. The longer you're with somebody, the more you know their imperfections, their sin and their brokenness, amen? You don't just to say it quite so emphatically, but yeah. But it's also the more that you grow in your love. It's also the more that you're able to celebrate being with this person. It's also the more that this depth of relationship begins to grow. Why? Because you begin to be able to be open and honest and it begins to just grow more and more. And this life becomes life more abundantly for those of us who are able to share those pains, to share those weaknesses, to admit them. We then begin to see the party and the celebration that comes. Why? Because we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are loved by God. And the more that we begin to grow, the more that we begin to see the celebration that occurs when you meet the one who loves you right where you are and yet is not afraid to invite you into an even deeper life where there will be moments of pain, brokenness to be sure but you will also be going deeper and deeper into the celebration into the party of living a life where you are loved and cared for and where Jesus is offering you food and drink and grace and forgiveness life abundant may it be so amen Amen. let's pray God, we know that there is an abundant life. We know, Lord, that through that doorway of repentance and forgiveness, if we have the courage to walk through it, that you show us a way that is different than the world around us. In a world, Lord, where we do all we can, where we expend so much energy, trying to defend ourselves. And for many of us, Lord, who try to hide from ourselves, you invite us to come through the door of repentance, that we might experience this banquet, this celebration. So I pray, God, that even in this moment, even right now that we would feel your love and in so doing we have begun the walk towards abundant life it's in your name we pray Amen.